You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let me invite you as we continue in worship to open your Bible to Acts chapter 8. We've begun our series entitled, Be Bold. And so we've been looking at what it means to be a bold believer in Jesus Christ. And we learned last week that Christians have a job. Our job is in distribution. It's not in manufacturing. It's not in marketing. We have a message to deliver. We're just the paper boy. We don't write the message. It's just our job to get it in the place where God wants it. And so last week we kind of looked at an episode out of the book of Acts where Christians were on the defensive. And uh, it's kind of feeling in our culture like we are more on the defensive as the culture gets a little more antagonistic toward this message that we are to deliver. And yet, we are not just to be on the defensive in being bold, we're also to go on the offensive. Now, playing offense does not mean that you are offensive. Bold, yes. Brash, no. Intentional, yes. Insulting, no. So today we're going to look at what it means to go on the offense in being bold. And we're going to look at an episode here in Acts chapter 8 for someone who was on offense. As we get into this, I I want to... um, let you know, first of all, this is a message for Christians. And every week we have friends and outsiders that are coming in. They're kind of tipping their toe, dipping their toe into the waters of Christianity, kind of figuring out, is this something I want to attach myself to? Well, this is a message for the church. It's a message for Christians. Every Christian is to be a bold evangelist. Now, I realize when I said the word evangelist, you just got a picture in your head of somebody with big hair and a bright blue blazer, okay? You say, I am not that guy. Well, I don't want you to be that guy. But every Christian ought to be bold and able to articulate the gospel to someone who needs to hear the good news. You are an evangelist. But let me set your mind at ease. I'm going to put a definition up on the screen. It's a very wordy definition. You can begin to write it down. You'll have time. But I want to let you know what we're talking about when we say evangelism. If we're to be bold in our evangelism, what does that mean? Here's what we mean. Bold evangelism is the process, usually prolonged, of guiding an unbeliever, or if you're an optimist, a pre-believer. Okay, any optimist out there? Yeah. So a pre-believer in the power of the Holy Spirit toward making many, many decisions. Did you get that? M-A-N-Y. M-I-N-I, decisions to overcome doubtful objections and trust Christ. Bold evangelism is the process, usually prolonged, of guiding an unbeliever or a pre-believer in the power of the Holy Spirit toward making many, many decisions to overcome doubtful objections and trust Christ. So what does all that mean? Well, first of all, notice that evangelism is a process. Don't think of evangelism as an event. To be an evangelist does not mean that you walk up to everything that moves and everything that breathes, and in 15 seconds you share your testimony, you bop them on the head, tell them you're a dirty, rotten sinner, the only solution is Jesus, and would you like to invite Jesus into your life right now so you can go to heaven when you die? It's a process. It's a process. It's a cultivated relationship. Usually the Lord will use you in a relationship to get the gospel into places. That may take Hours, it may take weeks, it may take years 
before a person trusts you enough to trust this Jesus that you're delivering with the message. And sometimes we think evangelism, it's kind of like, man, it's just, the world's just so hard out there. And it's, it's, we, we kind of think of evangelism as trying to light a fire in the middle of a driving rainstorm. Don't think of it that way. It's more like finding, fanning, and fueling a spark that God has already begun in a person's heart. Our job is not to create the fire or spark the fire. We're just in the process of looking for where God is moving in the world, and that is a process. Secondly, of guiding an unbeliever. Notice it's not arguing with an unbeliever. It's not answering all the objections. It's not giving a defense for everything that a person could possibly bring up. It's just simply pointing people to the news. We are carriers of news. It's like this. You're watching a football game, but it's late at night, and you're you're going to bed, and you're kind of curious who won. You wake up the next morning, and you open the sports page, or you turn on SportsCenter to find out your team has won, and it's good news. The message that we're delivering, even the word evangel, evangelist, or evangelism, the word evangel means good news, victorious news that our team has won. We're just simply to deliver that message and trust that God will spark in someone faith to believe that message. And we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the power of our flesh, not in the power of our intellect. We're simply working in cooperation with what God is already doing. And we're leading and guiding somebody toward making many, many decisions. This is what we mean. The decision to trust Christ as Savior is the culmination possibly of hundreds of little decisions someone would make. Before somebody trusts Christ, they have to first of all believe there's a God. Second decision is, I'm not Him. Some people don't know that yet, right? That's a decision you have to make. I am not God. The world is, the universe does not revolve around me, and I can't expect other people to bound out and worship me. Some people are getting to that point. Uh, some people need to understand what God is like. He is holy, but He's also a God who loves us enough to communicate to us. He doesn't just exist somewhere out there. He didn't just spin the world into place and he's out there just kind of watching us do our own thing. He's actively involved in our lives and God has spoken. Do you believe that God has spoken? Well, how has he spoken? Well, he wrote a book. And Do you believe the book? Well, what does the book say? Now I've got to know what's in the book and decide whether or not I believe what's in the book and decide if Jesus is the the one that God has provided to make. All those are many decisions that a person must make before they make the ultimate decision to trust Christ with their lives. And we lead them to overcome doubtful objections. Did you have any objections the first time you heard the gospel? Did did you believe the gospel the first time you heard it? There were some objections. Well, I don't know if I want Jesus to be my boss and ruler of my life. I don't know if I, those are objections. But then finally we trust Christ. And so understand evangelism is this process. And we don't have to convince someone. We just have to deliver the news. So here in Acts chapter 8, we're going to see an episode of how God uses our evangelism to get to someone's life. Now, there's one thing that both Christians and non-Christians totally agree upon. Both Christians and non-Christians hate telemarketers, right? You ever sit down at dinner and what happens? 
those of you that still have a landline, how many of you still have a landline, right? Welcome to the 21st century. They now have these cell phones things. And there's actually a do not call list you can register for so you don't get the telemarketers. But who wants to talk to a telemarketer trying to sell me something I'm not interested in? Well, God doesn't want you to be a telemarketer. God doesn't want you to be a televangelist, annoying people who aren't interested in the news that we're to deliver. But there is some news that God wants us to get into the hands of those who are interested. I want you to see this. Evangelists are always looking for openings. There are six openings that an evangelist is looking for. Here's the first one. He's looking for an open door. An evangelist walks through open doors. Here we are in Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch of the court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So notice here we're talking about this uh, early follower of Christ. His name was Philip. Philip was uh, the early evangelist. He'd already evangelized. He'd already gone and delivered the message to the Samaritans. And now God is going to use him to deliver the message to Africa. And so we're seeing this in the early history of the church, how God is using this man named Philip. Now, Philip heard from this angel. Now, what you have to understand is in the earlier part of this book, Philip had just led an incredible mass evangelism event in this nation or in this region of Samaria. Thousands of people were coming to Christ, and, 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 and Philip was being used. He was so productive. He was so fruitful. At that point, he was such a model, such a great leader. He was in the zone. I mean, he just, he was doing what he was built to do. And in the middle of all of that productivity, God sends an angel to Philip and says, I want you to shut it down. I am relocating you from Samaria to a desert place in the south, this little strip of land called Gaza. Gaza was the last watering place on the road to Africa, and it was not a vacation destination. This is not a place you would want to go and spend a little time because of the amenities offered, because of the, the climate and the, the sweetness of the people and the low taxes. This is not a place you would want to go. I believe that's the reason why God had to send an angel to get his attention, right? Now, by the way, angels are very prominent in the book of Acts, okay? In the book of Acts, we see angels at work doing God's bidding. In Acts chapter 1, an angel talked to the disciples after Jesus' resurrection. In Acts chapter 5, an angel opened the prison door and let out the apostles. In Acts chapter 10, an angel appeared to Cornelius. In Acts chapter 12, an angel let Peter out of prison. In Acts chapter 27, an angel comforted Paul during his shipwreck. We see the activity of angels all in the early part of the history of the church. Some of you say, well, I wish I got a message from an angel. If, if I, I, how many of you would help your boldness if an angel appeared to you and told you to get busy, right? Well, who's to say that angels aren't at work? The only reason we know of the activities of angels is because 
the Holy Spirit is inspiring the writer of Luke to tell of what's happening in the invisible realm, in the spiritual realm. There are angels at work. Here's what we need to understand. As evangelists, we've got help. There is an army of spiritual warriors that God has created to get his work done. And at, time, God, at times, God assigns them to come alongside of us to get his work done. And I believe there's angels at work right now in this room. I, I believe there are angels doing God's bidding. Okay. Now, don't diminish the role of angels in evangelism. We need to know we've got some help. But secondly, don't make too much of angels. Some of you are sitting here and say, well, if an angel appeared to me, I'll be bold. And, and when that happens, I'll, I'll get after it. Now, now you, you, you are reading about the activities of angels in a holy inspired book. You have the Holy Spirit. He's using the illumination of his word right now to get that message to you. You've got plenty of spiritual resources to be bold right where you are. So don't make too much of angels. Notice the message that the angel delivered. It says, rise and go toward the south. Now, as a person who grew up in the South, that is a happy message for me. <laughs> I like it when it's time to go on vacation, and all of our vacation destinations lead south. Anybody with me there, right? Especially if you're living up here. Now, listen, that was just personal application for me here. Um, the, the, the prompting of God's Spirit for my ministry has never said that. It's usually my flesh that's saying, Orlando's a nice place to plant a church. Um, the message God kind of prompted and put on the heart of Andrea and I was rise and go north. Okay? Now, the, the question is, for, for you, what has God said to you about where you are to be bold? And I would ask you this, where is your desert place? Do you see what it says? It was a desert place. No amenities, no frills, not the happiest place on the planet. Where is the one place that you are praying God will not send you to be bold? That might be the place God wants to send you, okay? As a matter of fact, I would say this. Some of you that are waiting to hear this message, God, where would you want to send me? Where would you want to go? I would suggest this. God has probably already spoken. And God has probably already sent you. The place you currently occupy is the place God wants you to evangelize. God wants to send his messengers getting this message out. And so, where do you regularly rise and go? For some of you, that's a workplace. For some of you, that's a school. For some of you, that's a neighborhood where you live. For some of you, that may be a retail or a marketplace. Where has God already sent you? Speaking of the workplace, the workplace is, is, is the place that you probably spend more time than any other place except your bed, okay? And yet, when you're unconscious asleep, it's hard to be bold, 
Okay? So I would suggest that the place that you spend the most time is probably the primary place of your evangelism. And for most of you, that is the marketplace. That's where you work. How many of you have a job? You have a job? You have a job? And do you know I have a job? Do you know? I, now, your job may be different than my job. Some of you say, man, I wouldn't want your job. Some of you say, I wish I had a job. You only work like one day a week and, you know, I don't know, just sit around and pray the rest of the time. You know, it's a really cushy job, right? Now, listen, do you want me to do my job for the right reason? Okay. What if you came and asked me, hey, Trent, hey, uh, hey why do you do what you do? What, why do you go to work? What if I told you, I go to work to make money? How many of you have been a little disappointed in your pastor if that was the reason that I went to work? How many of you say, that's a kind of a shallow reason for you to do what you do? Well, what if I came and asked you, why do you do what you do? Why do you go to work? And he's like, well, my family's got to make a living. I've got to put food on the table. I go to work to make money. Let me suggest something to you. If you go to work for a different reason than your pastor goes to work, one of us is going for the wrong reason. Do you know why I go to work? I go to work to be a bold evangelist and get the gospel out. Why do you go to work? It better be for the same reason. If you go to work for a different reason than I go to work, you're going for the wrong reason. You need to see your job as the place where God wants to use you to carry the gospel, to interact in the flow of pagan culture, to get the gospel to the place where God wants to get it. And so he sends Philip to this desert place where he interacts with this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, I want you to think about this, because as I read this, I don't know what you think of when you read the Bible. I, my mind kind of reads between the lines. And my question was this. If God has an angel that's committed to doing his work, why didn't God send the angel to the Ethiopian eunuch and leave poor Philip alone? Anybody think like me when I read the Bible? Why do you think that God sent the angel to Philip and then sent Philip to the Ethiopian? I believe it's because God not only wants to get some stuff done through you, God wants to get some stuff done in you. And for Philip to gulp real hard, pack his suitcase, shut down his ministry, say goodbye to friends and family, and kind of die to the vision of building a megachurch in Samaria, and to go to a desert place. He doesn't even know he's going to meet a guy, doesn't know who he's going to meet, doesn't know what he's going to do. But that is a sanctifying process where you have to become a little more like Jesus every day rather than build your own kingdom, be committed to his. And so God always, listen, God always uses a bold evangelist to get the gospel to the people who will believe. God uses people in the process of evangelism. He doesn't need you. He has angels for crying out loud. He doesn't need you. But he chooses to use you because he wants to get some stuff done in you while he's getting some stuff done 
through you. He wants to develop boldness in you. And listen, no one has ever come to Christ without the faithful, bold witness of an obedient evangelist. No one. Think about your story. Have you come to Christ? Did God use someone? God used someone. Here's the next thing. A bold evangelist not only walks through open doors, but he also looks for open hearts. Look at verse 27 again. It says that he, Philip, rose and went. Good job, Philip. He obeyed. He didn't make excuses. He didn't say, I'll go later. He didn't say, I'll send a delegate. He chose to obey. And when he did obey, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, now, let me just explain this without getting a little too graphic. Somebody's like, what's a eunuch? A eunuch was a, a castrated young man that um, was used to serve and care for harems in the ancient world. Okay, And so, in order to put a boy in the middle of a bunch of women without him being a threat, there was a little operation, a little proceeding. That, that took place in order to ensure that he was not going to be a threat to the harem. And so this, this young man, probably a young man, was uh, made a eunuch against his will as a young man. He'd grown up, and he, apparently he had been such a faithful servant to this queen that she had put him in charge of all of her money. He was the CFO of Candace Corporation in Ethiopia. All right. So I want you to notice how different this Ethiopian eunuch was from Philip. We don't know a whole lot about him, but if he was from Ethiopia, we know he was black. He was an African. We know he was rich because he'd been entrusted with all of the, the money. He was Southern, which speaks well for him. And um, he, he was disabled. He was single. He had a poor love life. He would never be a father. Let me ask you a question. Are there people that are so different from you that you have trouble cultivating relationship with them? Because Philip was completely different. Philip was Middle Eastern in origin. He had a Jewish religious background. This Ethiopian was pagan, had false worship in his background. And so... God chose to send somebody very different, cross-cultural, to engage this guy with the gospel. This, this tells us a couple of things here. First of all, there's no one outside the reach of the gospel. The gospel is for everyone, no matter skin color, nationality, race, origin, disability, marital status. The gospel is for everyone. And the second message is this. There is no one that you and I can, can, we cannot use an excuse saying that I don't understand the culture. I, I can't talk to this person. Rise and go for crying out loud and see what God will do with your faithful witness and look for an open heart. Now let's find out if this guy had an open heart. Notice what it says he was doing. He was actually, notice in the end of verse 27, he was returning from Jerusalem, where he had gone, it says, to worship. Now, now think about that. The distance between Ethiopia, by the way, 
this Ethiopia in the ancient world was actually modern-day Sudan. A 2,100-mile journey, over 2,000 miles, that this guy made without an automobile, without a plane, without a train, just simply doing what he could to get to the place of worship. Some of you had trouble to get to this place of worship this morning, and you only had to drive like 5, 10 miles in an air-conditioned car. This guy worked hard to get to the place of worship, and yet he was a pagan coming out of a false uh, uh, worship culture. How did he even know where to go? Why did he even have a heart to worship? The reality that we find in Scripture is this. Everyone has a heart that was made to worship. And your heart will worship. If you're an atheist here this morning, your heart is going to find something to worship. If you choose not to worship Jesus, you will find substitute saviors to worship. For you, that might be sex, it might be money, it might be entertainment, it might be football, it might be a wonderful marriage. It it could be a lot of different things. A lot of people worship religion, and it's a substitute for the gospel in their lives. But our hearts were made to worship. This eunuch's heart was created to worship. And so he was searching for some worship that would ultimately satisfy his soul. Apparently, his false pagan worship was not satisfying, and so he was willing to go on this trek 2,000 miles away to the place of worship. Apparently, someone had told him, that's where you will find the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And apparently, somebody had told him, there's this temple there, you should go there, there's this holy place. If you want access to God, that's the place you got to go. Did you hear about last week the... The, the, the Muslims who, one of their requirements, if you want to be right with their God, that you have to go to this place called, what's it called? Mecca. And, and sadly, 700 people were, were trampled to death as they journeyed to try to get to this place of false worship. Well, this guy was trying to get to the place of true worship in Jerusalem where he had heard this holy God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hangs out. And so, guess what? He gets to the temple... And he is denied access to God. After 2,000 miles to try to connect with God, he begins to walk into the temple to worship, and somebody tells him, you're not allowed in here. Now, we don't see that in the story, but we know it from the Old Testament because the Old Testament tells us that eunuchs were not allowed into the holy place because they were eunuchs. I don't understand that, but there's requirements. Not anybody could just go tripping into the presence of God. And so he's denied access. And so now he is on his way back home. Can you imagine how frustrated and disappointed and how rejected he must have felt? Maybe even a little embittered at the guy that told him you can go worship in Jerusalem. And so it was at that moment that God sends Philip into his path, and Philip finds an open heart. Now, here's what's interesting about this. He's a pagan, but somebody had pointed him to the place of worship. And it even tells us that this Ethiopian had a Bible. Look at verse 28. And was returning, seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So somebody had pointed him to the place of worship. 
Somebody had told him about the true and the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Somebody had told him he could have access to God at the temple. And somebody had even given this guy the Bible. Philip, when he engages him, finds this guy is well on his way to believing the gospel. He just needs another faithful witness. Let me ask you this. How many people could you identify who played a role, humanly speaking, in you believing the gospel? Could you identify some people? Maybe you think my mom, my dad, grandma, grandpa. Maybe had some aunts and uncles, maybe brothers, sisters, maybe even children. You could think of some pastors, maybe a youth pastor. You could think about maybe I heard Billy Graham on TV and I heard this guy on the radio one time. And, and there was this church and maybe two or three churches. And after, after all of those different people, I finally put my faith in Christ. Could you identify some people? Here's what surveys tell us. The average Christian can identify 16 different human agents that God used to deliver the gospel to them. So in our evangelism, here's what we need to realize. You never know which link in the chain you're going to be. You may be the first person to ever broach the subject that there is a God with somebody and that that God is holy and that you are a sinful person who cannot have access to God outside of Jesus. And that message may get delivered through a lot of different sources. You never know if you're going to be the first link or if you're going to be the one who actually is present when they are converted to Christ. Here's the thing. You don't have to be every link in the chain. You just need to make sure you're not the missing link in the chain. Right? You never know when you're having a conversation with Jesus. Is this going to be the conversation that's going to, going to produce faith in their heart? Am I going to be the one that's going to be able to actually pray with them to receive Christ? You don't have to be every link. That removes a little pressure. All you need to do is look for open hearts. Around here, we say it this way. We are looking for red apples. We practice red apple evangelism. Do you know the difference between a red apple and a green apple? have an apple tree, it produces apples. And if you love apples so much that you're a little impatient and you want to grab an apple and pull an apple off that tree and bite into that apple, you're going to be sadly disappointed because the apple's not going to be ripe. It's not ready to be picked. What we're doing is we are looking for red apples. We're looking for someone that God has cultivated a curiosity about worship. We're looking for people that are dissatisfied with what they've looked to to try to crave their appetite for purpose and meaning. We, we may be looking for people that are broken and hurting, somebody who's lost a loved one, someone who's uh, experienced a tragedy, somebody who's been diagnosed with a fatal disease, somebody that may have just be having a loneliness in their soul and they're wondering, where am I going to find somebody to meet the deepest needs of my heart? We look for open hearts and you cannot force your way into a heart that God has not prepared. We practice red apple evangelism, okay? And here's what we like to say. If you can't pick the apple, don't bruise it for crying out loud. Don't beat somebody over the head with the Bible trying to ripen their apple, okay? God has thousands of ways to ripen an apple. 
By the way, you may be somebody that God is ripening your apple and, and, and it's like you've tried everything else and God now has brought you to the place where you are ready to receive and to believe the gospel. Then at the end of the service, then come forward and we might be able to be the final link in the chain of seeing you come to Christ. Here's the third thing that an evangelist does. He listens with open ears. Look at verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip. Now that's interesting because where did the angel go? All right, the angel's not there anymore, but now the Holy Spirit's still speaking. That's good news because the same Spirit that spoke to Philip is available to us today. He's speaking right now in this message. And the, Philip, and, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran. Don't you love that? I mean, bold, intentional. He's not slowly walking. He's not turning in the other direction. He's not waiting for you know, some type of strategic move. He runs to the guy in obedience to God. And he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Notice he didn't interrupt. He just simply got close enough to listen to what this guy had been reading. Great point here. Um, if you want to be a good evangelist, you need to get close enough to find out what is filling the ears of people who have yet to hear the gospel. Fortunately, this guy had been reading the Bible. You talk about a red apple, okay? I mean, let's say that God puts on your heart to go and present the gospel to somebody and, and you show up at work you know, on Monday mornings like, okay, Trent, I'm supposed to be an evangelist in the marketplace. And somebody walks up to you and says, hey, I was reading the Bible this weekend and um, I don't really understand what I was reading here. Could you come over and sit down and explain to me about this Jesus guy? You talk about a red apple, an open heart. That guy was ready. This was the easiest fruit that has ever been picked in the history of the world. It says, he, he ran to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? Notice the power of a question. A question is a diagnostic tool to find out if God is at work in this person's life. And so he asked him the question, and he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So what kinds of questions would we use to discern if God is at work in a person's life? You could ask all kinds of questions. You could just simply say, um, hey, how could I pray for you? And just listen. People might tell you some things that are going on in their lives and things that have been dissatisfying to them or hurtful things. Uh, you could ask the question, do you have any spiritual beliefs? And, and just listen. And when you ask that question, basically no matter what they say, it's going to fall into one of two buckets. Either somebody is going to say, I try really hard to obey God so he will accept me. Or people would say, because God has accepted me, I'm trying really hard to obey God. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. And if somebody gives you a religious answer, trying, I'm really working hard, I'm really trying to pray, I'm really trying to do better, I'm truly, really trying not to sin, you know this person needs to hear the gospel because God's never going to accept you based on your performance. He's only going to accept you based on the performance of Jesus Christ. And so we ask questions. Our job is not to bring people to Christ. Our job is to bring Christ to people. 
It is to guide them and answer their questions and overcome their objections of the gospel. So he guided him, and it's our job to guide them through relationship. Even this week, I mean, you can, you can ask all kinds of questions. Um, you know, especially on a plane, this is a good one. If you were to die, like right now, if the plane went down, where would you go? But that's a great question on a plane, right? And, and just listen. And, and, and then here, here's a great question. And, and more of this will be unpacked with Kent and Paul in, in our evangelism class that's going to happen tonight. Here's a great question. After you ask all those questions, and just listen, ask this question. So if you were wrong, would you want to know? Now, somebody would have to be really arrogant to say no to that question. In almost every case, somebody's like, well, yeah, I'd want to know. All right, well, can I open my Bible and just kind of show you what God has to say about those questions? And that's the point at which you've listened, and now you can walk through the next door using open Bible. So this guy was reading in the book of Isaiah. We know he was reading chapter 53 because in verse 32 it tells us, Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. This guy said, I don't understand what's going on here. He's like a sheep, and there's a slaughter. Why would you slaughter a sheep? And what's the antecedent to the pronoun he? Who is he? Who is he who was slaughtered like a sheep? And like a lamb before its shearers is silence. He opens not his mouth. Verse 33. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Why would, why would he be denied justice if he was so humble? And we all long for justice. We all get upset when we see things in the world that are not just. And when will justice be served? Underline that word justice. It's very important. For who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. His life was taken? Whose life was taken? Why was it taken? These were all the questions that this guy had. And so notice verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And so he asked him, who is this guy and why was he slaughtered? And it gave Philip an opportunity. Look at verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with Scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus Christ. He was reading in Isaiah. You know, this was chapter 53. If he actually had a copy of the entire book or maybe he had a little section, maybe it was chapters from 50 to 60. Do you know what one of the things he would have read? Remember this eunuch. He would have read this in Isaiah 56 verses 3 through 5. It says this, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. You know what, you know what God is saying through his word here? There's hope even for a eunuch. You don't have to be hopeless. You don't have to describe yourself as a dry tree. Nothing ever good is going to come of my life. My life will never be productive. I'll bear no fruit. He says, you don't have to say that. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose the right things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. If that eunuch had been reading that, do you know what the hope was that was held out to him? You could have a father-son relationship with this God. The question was, how? 
And it gave Philip the opportunity to say, you know this sheep that was slaughtered? Let me, let me tell you what happened just a few years ago. God sent his son as an innocent lamb. And God hung him on a cross and slaughtered him. And the blood flowed out. And he died as a substitute for your sin. Let me tell you about justice. God declared that innocent lamb guilty of your sin and treated him as if he had committed your sin so that he can treat you as if you were an innocent lamb. That's the gospel. And we learn that story. He learned that story in the Bible. So he used an open Bible. He opened his mouth. That's what an evangelist does. He does. He speaks with an open mouth. We read it there in verse 35. And so I would just say to you, do you know how to use your Bible to get the gospel in the ear of someone who needs to hear it? Are you bold enough to know how to use your Bible? Can I just very quickly help you with that? Turn over in your Bible. Keep your finger there for a second. Turn over in your Bible to Romans chapter 3. Can you do that? And you will find there really the, one of the first places you need to open your Bible and talk to people about, about how to come into relationship with God. And it just declares in that verse that we're all separated from God. Romans 3.23, do you see it there? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All grandmothers have sinned, all Boy Scouts have sinned, all popes have sinned, all pastors have sinned. Everybody's sinned, and you can just look at them and say, you know what, um, I bet in your most honest moment, you, you know that you've committed wrong against God, right? Have you sinned? Mm, as a matter of fact, I have. Now, this is what you need to do. Just beside that verse, take a pen and write Romans six twenty three. Just write that and then flip over there and this is what you'll find when you get to Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. That sin, it's transgression against God and it produces death. That doesn't mean you're just going to die physically. It means that you're going to be separated from God eternally. Death is not the cessation of life. Death is the separation of body and soul. And spiritual death is the separation of a human soul from God. So the question is, how do we get this human soul and this eternal God to be in right relationship? That's the second half of the verse. It's a free gift. It's a free gift in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, Jesus, who, what? Well, how does that, who's Jesus? Yeah, that's over in Romans 5. So just write Romans 5 beside Romans 6.23. Romans 5, 8, write that verse. And then you take somebody over there. So let me tell you about Jesus. This is what Jesus did. God, the Father, showed his love for us. And that while we were dirty, rotten sinners, that's my translation, while we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Most important word in the Bible is the little three-letter word F-O-R. What Jesus did on that cross was for us in our place as a substitute for our sin. And then just right beside there, Ephesians 2, 
8 and 9. And you can take somebody over to this place in your Bible. For by grace you have been saved. What? Saved from sin. Saved from wrath. Saved from eternal separation from God. And you're saved through faith. I just have to believe something? That's right. You have to believe the good news, the gospel, the evangel, the good news that our team wins. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift. You don't work for gift. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. It's not about your performance. It's not about how religious you are. It's not about how good things that you do. None of your good things can erase the sinful things that you've done. It's all by faith. So what is faith? It's putting my trust, bearing my weight of my sin on Jesus Christ in the same way that right now you're exercising faith in the chair you're seated in, that it's not going to fall. It's bearing your weight. That's what we do when we trust Christ. We put all of our hope for eternal life in Jesus, he's bearing my weight. He's holding my up. I'm, I'm going to stop trusting myself. I'm going to put my faith in Christ. And then you take them to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, which simply tells us that a person in which God is activating, activating faith in will do these things. He will confess with his mouth that Jesus is the Lord. And he will believe in his heart that God has raised him from the dead. He's alive. And in believing that and in confessing that, it's the evidence that you have been, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. Do you see the word justified there? It's connected to the word justice, which means God declares you a guilty sinner as if you'd never sinned. It's a declaration by God that changes your legal statting before status before him so that you can be in right relationship with him with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved it's not the confession that saves you it's not even the belief that saves you it is the justification that saves you that god changes your legal status as if you'd never sinned that's how a person can come to faith in Christ. I would ask you, I told you this message was for Christians. That's the message we carry, but are you a Christian? Have you been justified? If not, you need to believe that message. And you need to be bold enough to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be bold enough to confess that with your mouth. It's the evidence that you have been saved. And here's the last thing. As evangelists, we call for open identification. Look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Look at verse 37. Are, are you looking at verse 37? How many, how many of you have a Bible? Somebody stole verse 37 out of your Bible. Are you looking at it? Wait, wait a minute. I didn't get a complete Bible. There must have been a typo. Somebody left out verse 37. How many of your Bibles do have verse 37 in it? Okay. So let me tell you what's going on here. Okay. Um, when the English translators, who did us a great favor in learning Greek and Hebrew, translating the original language into the English language, 
every now and then, very seldom, one-tenth of one percent of all the verses in the Bible, there is a dispute on whether or not some words were a part of the original manuscripts. The author of Acts is Luke. And so, those who study these things, as they study the original manuscripts, some of the manuscripts include verse 37 and some of them don't. The older, more trusted manuscripts don't include verse 37. So the question is, well, who put verse 37 in there? Do you ever write in your Bible? You put notes in there? Got I hope you have a lot of my notes in there, right? So here's the thing. Some, remember, the Bible was written you know, before the printing press. People hand-wrote the Bible. So if you are translating a manuscript and, and it's Luke's copy, a copy of Luke's Word, and if you wanted to put a comment about Luke's words in there and you just kind of wrote that down and then you continued with Luke's words later, it would become very hard to discern, is this Luke's word or is this a commentary about Luke's words? And so some people would say verse 37 is probably an added commentary on Luke's words. So now you're really curious is what verse 37 is, right? Now, if you have a modern translation, we, we like to read from the ESV, the English Standard Version around here. If you look down in your footnotes, they included verse 37 in the footnotes. Do you see what it says? It says this. It says, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may, you may be baptized. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So here's the thing. Should that be included or not? I don't know. But let me ask you this. Is that biblical? Absolutely. Does that confirm all the other verses that we just read? Yeah, so whether or not that happened or not, we don't know. But we know that this guy believed in the gospel because he's asking now to be baptized. Look at verse 38. And he commented, I'm sorry, he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So what's baptism all about? It's all about identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so Philip had unpacked for him. Jesus Christ was slaughtered like a lamb on that cross. He died on that cross. He was buried, and for three days we thought he was dead. But he came back to life. We've seen him. He's commissioned us to deliver this message to you. And, and, and those who are saved, who, those who believe this message, they identify with Christ publicly as a Christian through the picture of baptism, which pictures Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. All who believe and are converted are baptized. And so throughout the New Testament, they're baptizing people who have confessed faith in Christ boldly to come out publicly as a Christian. Last verse, look at verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, just a little side note here. What's the proper method for baptism? Why do you think these guys had to get down off the chariot, go down into the water, and then come back out of the water? Because baptism means immersion. It means to go all the way under and come up all the way out. So we see that pictured here in the Scripture. And the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away because he had another assignment, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. What was the question that the eunuch asked? What prevents me from being baptized? The question is, do you believe? Are you, are you bold enough to go public with that? I would ask some of you this morning. What prevents you from being baptized? 
It's like, well, the water's cold and my makeup will run. It's so embarrassing and I'm nervous and what if I drown? <laughs> Listen, what prevents you from being baptized? You know what the answer is? Some of you aren't bold enough to be baptized. And some of you need to be baptized. You have confessed Christ, you've believed in your heart, and it is time for you to go on record and run the Jesus flag to the top of the pole and be baptized as a way of identifying with the one who gave his life for you. And you identify with his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. What's our job as Christians? It's to get the message of Jesus out into the community and trust God to work. Let me ask you to bow his head, bow your heads and close your eyes. Let me just first of all speak to you as Christians. Those of you that need the boldness that we've talked about. God's calling you to be a Philip, maybe to go to a desert place. But for most of us, God has already put us in the place where we need to evangelize. It could be our marketplace, it could be our neighborhood, could be a team we're on. Will you look for the opening? Open hearts and then open your mouth. Open your Bible to get the message that God wants in that place. Others of you may just be at the beginning stages of coming into faith with Jesus Christ. It's a decision. It's a point of conversion. And today I would ask you, do you believe the message? Would you be bold enough to identify with Jesus through baptism? If that's you, as we conclude the service, we'll be down here with some of our pastors and our elders. And I would just invite you to be bold enough to leave your seat, to come forward, and just simply say, I need to be baptized. I need to go on record that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I want the world to know it. You proclaim your faith in Christ not by raising a hand, not by signing a card, not even by giving a testimony. You do it first and foremost through baptism. Father, today, thank you for your word that is so clear. God, I pray that you would continue to spark uh, in hearts throughout this community an interest in something that goes beyond false worship. God, meet them at the point of their needs. And then God, give us the boldness to open our mouths and declare that you are the only way to have access. It's not through a church. It's not through a pope. It's not through a religious system. It is through Jesus Christ, our high priest. And God, I pray that you would give us some the boldness to deliver that message, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.